hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Active. Passive. Active. Passive. No active. Passive. What are we talking about? Well, it's probably not what you're thinking. It's actually about investing. On today's Career Money episode number 370, we're talking about active versus passive investing, and which is probably better for most of us. And maybe whether or not you should be hiring or firing a financial advisor in 2023. Now, on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. So the S&P Dow Jones Indices just recently published a study that showed that not a single mutual fund out of all 2,132 mutual funds, including US stock and bond market mutual funds, none of them regularly or consistently beat its benchmark over the last five years. And get this, this is worse performance numbers than 2014 and 2015. What? What? What happened in 2014 and 2015? It was slightly better. <laughs> right. Yeah. So folks- Trump wasn't president yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> folks, we just want to do it. We forewarn you. We're inviting you into a conversation that John and I are having about whether or not we want to switch to be a little bit more passive investors and whether or not we may want to get rid of a financial advisor in- We don't want to get rid of our financial advisor. We're just- doing the math and trying to figure out whether the math makes sense. So just to give you the 411, which I don't know if you all heard is going to be going away soon, right? No one's calling. Only you know that kind of non-essential information. No one's calling 411 anymore. Everybody's calling Siri or Google. Just So we're just simply doing the math, you know, consistently study after study over decades. I mean, this, is, this isn't new information. Over decades, studies have been done and show that it's hard for mutual fund managers, financial advisors to consistently year over year outperform the stock market. Yeah. So the question becomes then, why are we paying these high fees? I mean, we calculated that we have a financial advisor and we we love them. They're, they're a wonderful human being and we like who we the, the company that they work for. We've been working with them for years and have done brand partnerships with them in the past. Wonderful. Everybody's wonderful. But when you look at the numbers, we're paying about six to $8,000 a year to have our money managed. When all of this data from like <laughs> People Magazine to Harvard journals showing that that the advisors- It's not on the queer media. It's definitely not being talked about <laughs> yeah, there. We don't talk about financial <laughs> queer media. That the fund managers and financial advisors can't consistently beat the stock market. So why are we paying six to $8,000 a year for the off chance that out of every 10 to 20 years, the fund managers we're using are going to be that particular indices market? Right. Obviously, there are every once in a while, there's a standout. But I think that the data shows that they may be able to do it for a quarter or two or maybe a year, but it's not like they do it consistently. Right. And so I think that's the question is, if you had a friend who was there for you 
once or twice a year, but let you down the rest of the year, how long would you be friends with that person, right? Well, clearly for 19, 20 years. <laughs> Just expletive, expletive, expletive you. <laughs> but so, yeah, so the, the Dow Jones or S&P Dow Jones indices also, they assess that which funds ended in the top 50% year over year. So the, you know, the top, the 50% quartile, well, that's not, not the quartile. quartile. <laughs> <laughs> the top 50%. And only 1% of those mutual funds were able to do that, being the top 50%. So no, 1% of those are beating the indice, right? So even when you say, is my fund performing above average, your fund might be performing above average when compared to all of the mutual funds, but is it still beating the index? Only highly, 1% of that unlikely. do that from time to time. <laughs> so we came up with a series of questions. If all funds that track the benchmark perform similarly, why not invest in the lowest cost index funds? If mutual fund managers can't beat their benchmarks, why not invest in funds that track the benchmark? If mutual fund managers can't beat their benchmarks, <laughs> what are the chances a financial advisor can beat the market and can beat the market and cover their costs because we have to pay their costs for their yeah, time, what are, their expertise. What are we paying them for? Yeah, exactly. So this just begs the question, why pay these fees? Even if you're working with a low-cost financial advisor, why pay those exorbitant fees? It just begs the question, why, why are you paying six to $8,000 a year? Fortunately, we have our experience in financial services, right? We used to help advise people on our own. And so this isn't completely abstract to us. But if we were able to take our portfolio, transition everything into low-cost index ETFs, and make sure it's diversified in alignment with our time horizon, our risk tolerance, and could commit to rebalancing our portfolio every 6 to 12 months, we would probably be able to reduce our costs. What would you say, about down to $1,000 a year? Yeah, I guess it really depends on where we need or want the help. Right. I think we have to understand that there's going to be some basic fees associated with it. Oh, right. Yes. Having having an account at certain locations, you may and we may end up paying some sort of maintenance fee, or there are still fees associated with various ETFs, or even if you have a mutual, a low-cost mutual fund, there's still some fees associated with those that we would still be paying. So it is highly likely we would we could potentially drop it by anywhere from Four to five thousand dollars at least. Yeah, but it it also depends on you know you you brought up some some questions. Are we going to rebalance the portfolio? And folks, rebalancing basically means if you select, let's just say for example, you selected that you wanted sixty percent of your portfolio to be in large cap and forty percent of your portfolio to be in bonds. Well, as the market moves, that 60-40 is going to change because of growth in one or declines in one. What you have to do from time to time is what they call rebalance and push it back towards that 60-40 split by selling some and shifting it to others. And so the question is, are we going to do that? Will we do that for ourselves? Will we do it on the frequency that needs to be done? Right. Because if you neglect doing that, you can really throw your, your asset allocation out of whack, and then you would be doing much more miserably than a lot of financial advisors, especially like if, you know, in a market like we've recently had, we've had a, a lot of a down swings in the market. And if you don't do anything to reallocate, to try to prepare yourself for the upswings or to do anything to address the here and now, you could really screw yourself. It doesn't necessarily mean that you would do worse, but your portfolio doesn't match what you have asked it to do, 
right? It's no longer doing, if you asked it to be a 60-40 split, it's no longer, it could be a 70-30, it could be an 80-20, it could be a 90-10, especially if you have, in some years where some asset classes perform really, really, really well, you could see that your portfolio swings widely away from what you wanted it to. And one of the concerns with that is what we have seen happen in the last year is that then we see a big change in the market, the market drops, and everybody gets excited and has fun and enjoys it when they're watching the portfolio go up. But had you do a rebalance to shifting to things that maybe were a little bit more conservative, the drop that we're having right now wouldn't be as bad. Your what do they call that when somebody is your come down, right? Your come down from from high. the the <laughs> high of watching your portfolio. A lot of people in in crypto and and are having this experience or have had this experience over the last year is having this really hard come down from that high of watching your portfolio perform really well. And we have to ask ourselves, would we be willing to spend the time and do that? I think the other important question is, are we confident in ourselves enough? to be able to come up with the right portfolio for us in the situation that our lives are in right now. A lot of folks, especially younger folks, I'm just going to say folks who are probably 35 and younger, throwing everything into large cap or more aggressive type of investing isn't... I would say large cap's aggressive. It can be, right? It depends on what kind of large cap you're picking. But if you put all of your portfolio in that, the reality is, is you've got 10, 20, 30, 40 years before you're going to tap into that money. So you have a long time to work on rebalancing. You're really focused on, I want lots of growth. And that's most likely where the growth is going to happen. Well, we're moving a little bit more towards being conservative as we age because we want to maintain our portfolio as we get closer and closer to when we want to retire. And I think that that's next that, week. Yeah, right. That that I think that's a question we have to ask ourselves: Is are we confident already to sit down and say, okay, what do we want our portfolio to look like? Do we want it to be a hundred percent in the S and P five hundred, like a lot of fire folks who are in their 30s and 40s right now have their portfolios? Or do we want it to be in large cap, mid cap, small cap, international? Do we want that kind of mix? Yeah. And, and what is the right mix for us? Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. I don't know that I'm as concerned by that as maybe somebody who hasn't had an entire career in financial services. So it might be a little bit different for if we didn't have that experience. But I know that we know enough information that we could, I think, piece together a decent portfolio allocation for ourselves. I mean, heck, we could do a snapshot of what our asset allocation is right now and say, how can we best mirror that <laughs> right. with low-cost ETFs, index funds? And that is one of the fees that you can potentially pay for. There are financial advisors who will just do a one-time session for you where they sit down and they help you figure out what your 
asset allocation should be for you this year or right now, right? Based on your your life circumstances. And that's a fee that we might incur in that thousand to two thousand dollars a year if we were looking at it. Do we want to spend five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars to sit down with a financial advisor, give them our life story and our money story and say, are we on track? Where should we be focusing? What should our allocation be? And then we take that information and we execute it on, on it ourselves. It's almost like it's the architect who builds the blueprint. And then instead of going to the contractor and having the contractor do it, we take that and we say, okay, we're going to build the house ourselves. Well, now you're scary talking. Yeah, exactly. It's a pretty crappy well, so house. On average, per nerd wallet, on average, you're paying a human advisor 1%. Now that 1% is on top of, if they're, if they're recommending mutual funds for you, each mutual fund has their own operating expense and typically their own management yeah, expense. If they're investing you in index funds, there's not typically a management expense or at least as egregious of a management expense. But if they're just putting you in index funds, why are you paying a financial advisor? to pick index funds for you. That's the question there. So not only are you paying for those mutual fund operating expenses and management expenses, and you're paying for the human that you're working with on an ongoing basis, typically about 1%. Even a robo-advisor, which are the robots that are doing the advisor that the humans are doing and eventually will take over and kick the humans out of their jobs, they're still on average charging 025 to 0.5%. And I did some crunching of some numbers, which gets David a little bit scared, but I did <laughs> when some- John thought, When John starts working with numbers, it does sometimes <laughs> um, get scary. I went, you know, historically, Vanguard is known as the lowest cost fund company out there. We are by no means recommending that anybody use Vanguard. I just went to the lowest cost that I, I historically was aware of. And their S&P 500 ETF is 0.03%. That is their expense operating, operating expense. expense ratio. And just folks, just to let you know, an operating expense ratio is how much the fund charges the fund itself, how much the fund company charges the fund to cover the costs of running the fund. So for example, when they decide to sell a million shares of Google and buy 750,000 shares of Tesla, then they have an expense associated with that. Why would they be that. doing that? Right yeah, now? I don't know why they would do that right now either. <laughs> Probably bad example. Bad example. But when they decide to do that or they do that, they have a transactional cost for that. And that transactional cost is taken away from the fund. So that's typically what that expense ratio but is. There's also marketing, make sure people know that the fund's out there. You know, and, and of course there is some human involvement with that that you have to that they do have to, you know, incur. And so they need, need to figure out how to cover those costs. But that's just that much less dollars that you invest going to the fund to grow and come back to you when you decide to withdraw it. That's going to, you know, in this case Vanguard and whoever it is that works for Vanguard. But there's not typically a management expense tied to that because it's just tracking an index. And all they need to do is figure out what they need to do to track the index that already exists. Right. Just by comparison, if you're using a robo-advisor, a quarter of a percent, which is probably one of the cheapest that you'll be able to get for ongoing management, even just doing it yourselves and going to the S&P 500 Vanguard ETF is 0.03%. Right. There's a significant savings there. Now, I wouldn't recommend that anybody go 100% into the S&P 500. That's not very good diversification. We would definitely recommend diversifying. So the mid-cap and the Russell 2000 are a little bit more expensive at 0.1%. We would always recommend for ourselves anyway, you know, incorporating some international. And so that's 0.07%. So it's not 
as simple as 0.03%, but comparable. I mean, all those numbers I just rattled off about those index ETFs are considerably lower than anything that we're looking at from robo-advisors to a human advisor. Right. Yeah. So I took a look at our portfolio, at least the managed portion of my retirement portfolio. And I think that there were 22 different securities that were listed in that portfolio. And so that's what makes up my asset allocation. If we were to just break it down into that right there and say that there are just five items, S&P 500, S&P Midcap, Russell 2000, All World International, and Intermediate Bond, it would reduce the number and all of the expenses that were associated with those funds, as well as the management fee that would be we're being charged. So, I mean, I think, so really the question is, mathematically, it would make sense for us to start managing our portfolio on our own, going to low cost index ETFs. Emotionally? Emotionally. I think we're good emotionally. I don't think you and I tend to be emotional investors. And in down markets, if we were not investing in real estate in down markets, we typically are buyers. That might change as we get older and we become a little bit more conservative conservative in our investing. We might be buying something else. I don't, right. But I don't think we're typically emotional investors. And we typically, when we do buy, at least when I did, you're not so much this way. When I did buy individual stocks, I always had an entrance strategy and an exit strategy. You're not the same. (laughs) Well, I'm long-term and I'm on some of the companies, I'm really long-term and I'm riding out some of the ups and downs that are going on right now. I'm bracing... I have my own shit handle I'm holding on to right now because he's not selling some things that I think he should well, and, but, but he gra- should unwind. Granted, we, we are right ourselves right now are experiencing some of the come down of my portfolio doing really real my portion of our portfolio well. doing really, really well in the last three to five years. Yeah. But to the topic at hand, mathematically, it make, when you look at the numbers, it makes sense for us to just do that, start going to low-cost index ETFs. I think emotionally, we're probably fine. I think what I'm most concerned about is in our case, and I think this is probably should be a common concern for a lot of people. I think a lot of people should be concerned about their emotion and would they sell out when they shouldn't sell out and buy when they shouldn't buy. And that's one way that a financial advisor is great because they do provide that coaching that a lot of people need. And that's part of why they charge that 1%. So I think that's a major concern for a lot of people to think about. And if that's you, you want to be honest with yourself before you decide to adopt this strategy of going completely passive investing. For us, I think I'm more concerned about will we sit down at least once a year, preferably twice a year to just make sure that our allocation is correct. And you know, I guess how good are we at changing our the battery in our fire alarm every year? Or is it that twice a year or once a year? <laughs> once a year. What's the rule? You should test it twice a year, but I think it's replace it once a year. Right. So how good are we with doing <laughs> We're probably going to have some firemen <laughs> contact us and say, you guys are, you're, doing it you're a fireman. So <laughs> I think if the gravity of knowing that we could completely ruin our investments, our retirement strategy, the gravity of that might would probably keep us honest. Yeah. And I will say, I don't think that we would, well, especially if, let's just say this, if we had a large portion of our portfolio in the S&P 500, the S&P mid cap, and the Russell 2000, the likelihood of us completely ruining our retirement portfolio, requiring us to go back to work when we're in our sixty, late 60s or 70s is pretty close to nil. And the reason I say that is if we were to 
have a 90% loss, 80 to 90% loss in our portfolio, then there is something more catastrophic happening globally that would cause all these companies. Yeah. Yeah. We're in I, those kind of times right, right now. Right now. Well, yeah. <laughs> Be quiet. Political environment aside, I don't think that there's something like that that would happen. So for our listeners and viewers, here's what I would say. One, get honest with yourself whether or not you're you would be an emotional investor. You sometimes you need that coach to say, no, now is not the time to sell, despite how scary it might be, or no, that is not the thing to buy right now, despite how amazing crypto might be. If you need that person, then maybe paying for a financial advisor makes sense. Or if you have the concern that we have. Also, or also, you have the concern that we have that you wouldn't do the homework once or twice a year to make sure you stay balanced, then it might make sense to stick with an advisor. If you feel like you aren't an emotional investor and that you can stay honest and do the homework once or twice a year to stay balanced, then maybe you might want to consider going with a more passive investing strategy, saving for yourself anywhere from, I don't know, I don't know what people pay on average, but maybe three to $10,000 a year, depending upon the size of your portfolio, it might make sense to save that money and, and do it yourself. Yeah. I would argue that... Well, and I'm just going to jump in here. You just said anywhere from three to $10,000. Really, the probably the way you should be looking at it is if you're using a financial advisor, you're most likely paying between their fee and the management fees of the funds that they select. You're probably paying close to two and a half percent of your total portfolio right. towards those fees, right? So if you look at that and you ask yourself, okay, if I've got a portfolio of $500,000, 2.5%, am I comfortable giving up that amount of money every year for the services that the advisor provides? Right. And I, I, That's a good question to ask. Yeah. Yeah. I would also argue though that at a certain point your portfolio gets so big that it absolutely makes sense to loop in a financial advisor because there's some expertise that are outside of right. most of our scope. I would argue that maybe that benchmark for most people is once you reach the 1.5 to 2 million dollar mark is maybe when you want to say, okay, maybe this is a little bit bigger than what I can handle. Because there are some things to be concerned about, right? You want to make sure you're managing the yield curve. You also want to loop in other priorities that you might be influence your investment strategy beyond just what do I buy and sell. And then of course, you know, then you want a little bit more active management because you want to have a little bit more flexibility with you know possibly doing short sales or put options if you're trying to hedge against some losses. Right. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, okay, I don't necessarily understand what he's talking about. These are big words or these are concepts that I'm not familiar with. The reason why John is saying this is why you want to loop in a financial <laughs> advisor is because these are not common. These are not common investment strategies that most people use. And so you want to have that extra advice unless you are willing to go down that path yourself do and do the homework and really understand it. I will add one of the other things that happens with portfolios that size, especially if you have a portion, a large enough portion that is not in a retirement account. So if you have it in a just a regular brokerage account, and this can happen a number of ways, maybe you got an inheritance or a windfall and you decided to invest it and that did really well, or you are a non-spouse beneficiary of someone's IRA. So Aunt Betty died and gave you a portion of her retirement account, then there are some tax strategies that actually can save you, in some cases, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars over your lifetime that it might be good to loop in a financial advisor. 
And the other thing is, is at that point, especially at the closer you get to the $10 million mark, you're going to want a financial planner, not just a financial advisor who can tell you what to invest in and when to buy and sell, or but a financial planner who will say, okay, let's bring in an estate attorney, let's bring in a tax accountant so that they look at your total financial picture. That's when it really starts to become more valuable to have somebody looking at all of that and giving you the right kind of recommendations and questions to ask your estate estate attorney, to ask your tax attorney or a tax accountant. All of that really starts to, you start to looking at a financial planner who's looking at more than just your investments. But if you have less than $1.5, $2 million, maybe going more passive makes sense. If you have you know, $2 million or $10 million or, or more dollars, you're probably not listening to this podcast and you're not worried about saving $5,000 <laughs> a year. That's probably true. And you probably already have a financial planner who's taking care of a lot of that for you. Exactly. Unless you were an early uh, employee in one of the big tech firms and you're just sitting there with a ton of money and you're young and you just haven't engaged somebody. Good. And if you're that in that situation, please engage somebody so that you're not overweighted on one particular investment. So for the rest of us, please stay tuned for your criminal takeaway from this episode. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thanks again, folks, for listening to another episode of the Core Money Podcast. We also want to thank you for listening to a conversation that has been happening in the house of DFG for a while. And we wanted to have this dialogue because we think this is kind of a common question in a lot of households that are trying to figure out how should we be investing. So here's your core money takeaway from this episode. Ask yourself the question, should I or should we be leaning towards being active or passive when it comes to our investing? Do yourself a favor, do the numbers yourself, figure out what is right for you. And then let us know, share in the comments here on the the video or on social media, whether or not you're active or passive. You can always share that in the Crew Money Facebook group as well. Then join us this Thursday for another Crew Money bonus episode when we talk about the state of LGBTQ healthcare in the US. And next Tuesday, when we answer a listener's question about how to prepare his finances to protect his husband with Parkinson's in case he, the caretaker, passes away. Thank you and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.